Welcome to LPP, the Legal Privilege Podcast by Herbert Smith Freehills, where we unpack the tricky and wonderful concept of legal professional privilege and apply some key privilege principles to practical scenarios. I, I am Brendan Donoghue, a Senior Associate here at HSF, and I specialise in contentious regulatory investigations and disputes. Hi everyone, I'm Maren Quayle. I'm a partner in our disputes group and I encounter the types of privilege issues we'll be discussing in my day job, both from an internal investigations and regulatory investigations perspective and also in a general commercial disputes context. And I'm Christine Wong, a partner in our disputes practice also with a specialisation in internal and regulatory investigations and enforcement matters. So today in the podcast, we're hoping to cover two main things. First, a quick refresher on some of the key principles of legal professional privilege. And secondly, how you might think about some of those matters in the context of establishing an in-house investigation. For example, that might arise when a regulator comes calling. Before we do that, Merrin, would you mind sharing with us what the key considerations are from a privileged perspective when an investigation does arise? And of course, as we both know, those can often occur with little notice. For example, a regulator might come knocking or it might arise through a whistleblower or some sort of media report. Thanks, Christine. And it's worth mentioning at the outset that as you say, there's often an urgency that attaches to investigations when they first arise. In our collective experience, taking a bit more time up front to think about the purpose of the work that's going to be done and how it might need to be used in the future is really important. It can often save a lot of headaches and time down the track. It should be noted that legal professional privilege is obviously an important privilege which is properly available to corporations and individuals in certain contexts. And so we just wanted to emphasise the importance and value in giving this concept the appropriate consideration upfront as to whether it attaches and whether it should be used. But before we go into too much detail on that question, Brendan, perhaps you can just start with talking about what is legal professional privilege. Thanks, Marin, and that is a good place to start, I think. Um, one probably first thing to note is that legal professional privilege has been described by the High Court as an important common law right, or perhaps more accurately, an important common law immunity, um, as you sort of foreshadowed earlier, Marin. And in very brief terms, as our listeners are no doubt aware, for LPP to apply, one needs a communication or document which satisfies three aspects. First, it needs to be made in confidence. It needs to be, needs to be between a lawyer and client or a lawyer, client and a third party. And it needs to be made for the dominant purpose of giving or receiving legal advice or preparing for actual or anticipated litigation. I'm sure most of our listeners have heard that formula a lot over the years, and it sounds fairly straightforward to say, but as we all know, 
particularly in the context of corporate investigations, it's rarely that simple. Perhaps we should start, Christine, by focusing on the dominant purpose test. Why does dominant purpose sometimes or perhaps often pose potential challenges? I think it's right to focus on that plank, Brendan, because it is the aspect of establishing privilege in an investigation context that is the most curly and tricky. And I think the short answer to that is that is because often there are just multiple purposes at play in addition to a purpose of seeking legal advice on facts. So, for example, you may have operational, financial, commercial, or in fact, other regulatory compliance obligations at play, which mean that you are looking at various purposes for needing to get to the bottom of something. So just as a way of example, and this is something that's coming up more and more for our clients, where there's a cyber breach incident, an investigation may occur to understand the root cause of the issue to avoid it occurring again, but also to be able to get to the bottom of um, issues and reporting to regulators and also to obtain legal advice. And there may be a, a plethora of other sort of purposes that are at play there. Then there's a need to show who from the organisation, uh, whose purpose it is that's relevant. Um, and in this instance, who commissioned the particular document or communication. And that may also not be clear given the various purposes at play within an organisation when the investigation does arise. Maren, from a practical perspective, where have you seen these types of issues arise commonly? Thanks, Christine. As you touched on, and it's apt to give it, it's the subject of the podcast, but in the case of internal investigations, where this becomes really acute is where, as you've touched on, there are multiple purposes purposes behind the work that's being done. Now, this isn't an unusual occurrence. I'd say close to 90% of what we see come across our desks would be involving more than one purpose. And so with that in mind, something to keep in mind at the initial stages of an investigation is that while the dominant purpose of the investigation is relevant and key and absolutely needs to be there in order to proceed down the privilege route. What also needs to be borne in mind in addition to considering the purpose of the investigation overall is also remembering as Brendan touched on earlier that it is the communication and individual communications that need to have the relevant privilege purpose. So at each point when a document's being created, when an email is being written, you need to be satisfied if claiming privilege that their relevant dominant purpose of that particular communication is satisfied. Now, Brendan, this concept is one that's been recently tested in a case brought by the ATO against PwC. Yes, it was, Merrin, and unfortunately, the person or the entity claiming privilege in that case was not successful in maintaining those privilege claims. Um, the case is Commissioner of, Commissioner of Taxation and PricewaterhouseCoopers, and the citation is 2022 FCA 278, in case um, people want to look it up. Um, in that case, Justice Mishinsky found that PwC had wrongly claimed privilege over documents regarding tax advice that had been provided to a client. Um, these documents had been prepared 
through non-legal practitioners and in Justice Mishinsky's words, routed through a legal practitioner as legal advice. Um, the ATO argued that the relevant legal practitioner had been used as a post box to provide a cloak of privilege. In particular, the way the draft email was prevented, presented for sending by the lawyer um, and the absence of legal content in the draft email or the relevant attachment lent support to the idea that, doc that the document was an instance of non-legal advice being, again, in Justice Mashinsky's words, routed through a lawyer to seek to obtain protection of legal professional privilege. It is a further reminder that privilege is not a blanket that can be easily thrown over all potentially sensitive or commercial commercial in confidence communications, tricky issues need to be navigated if privilege is to be properly claimed and maintained. Christine, that brings us to another issue that can often arise, which is whose purpose matters when a court is considering whether legal professional privilege applies? Typically in our context, the person claiming privilege is a company. And ultimately, therefore, the relevant purpose for the document um, and the conduct that's relevant is also that of the company. So where you have an employee who's acting within the scope of her or his authority, and they either create or commission a document, it's the purpose of that employee, which may be imputed to the company for these purposes. And the courts have also emphasised that if there is a disputed privilege claim, evidence from those types of persons may be necessary to substantiate the claim. And it could be quite senior individuals within the organisation, like the CEO at times. I think just to round out our section on the principles, and particularly, Brandon, you touched on maintaining privilege, uh, waiver of privilege is an important issue as well, and that will arise where there's conduct, which is inconsistent with maintaining the confidentiality of a document or communication. That issue is something we'll address in a later episode in this series. So I might hand over to you, Brendan, just in relation to some principles around establishing and thinking through establishing an investigation. Thanks, Christine. And in talking that through, perhaps there might be value in giving a practical example to provide a sense of how these principles might impact an investigation in the real world. So hypothetical scenario to keep in mind as we talk through things um, to think about in the initial phases of setting up an investigation. Let's assume you're an in-house lawyer, it's Monday night, and you receive an email containing a whistleblower report. It alleges wide-scale fraud committed by a number of named employees in relation to customer accounts. It says the fraud extends from Australia right to the parent company in, let's say, the UK. It doesn't, however, contain any supporting detail or evidence. Now, the CEO calls you and asks you to set up an investigation to understand the report, legal exposure and reporting obligations. The CEO says that the report and investigation are to, complete, are to be completed as soon as possible and on a strictly privileged and confidential basis. 
Now, assume you're that in-house lawyer and you start to plan how you will get the investigation underway. That's obviously a challenging way to spend a Monday evening, Merrin. But what are some initial considerations or where might one start? Very good question, Brendan, whether it be a question for a Monday evening or otherwise. Um, Investigations give rise to some quite specific challenges in relation to privilege that might often be less relevant in, for example, a court proceeding context. Some examples of what I mean by that include regulators and indeed courts often being resistant, um, and it's fair to say in some instances highly resistant to what we describe as a blanket claim of privilege over the work product of investigations. This ties into the concept that it's not the investigation overall that's privileged and the key question for each document and communication in the investigation being whether it satisfies the dominant purpose test individually as well as collectively. Practically what that looks like in a regulatory investigation context by way of example is needing to identify the basis and the substance of each privileged claim made over every document which is sought to be withheld from, for example, a compulsory document production request. And for some of the regulators, it's a multiple page form needed for each document going into details such as who's the author, what was the purpose, what was the date, who was the recipient and so forth. There might also be pressure to disclose the results of investigations to third parties. This could include regulators, as we've touched on, also internal or external auditors and other stakeholders, depending on the business. And if this disclosure is made, that can undermine claims, especially if you're in the territory of wanting to disclose the reasoning and that puts you squarely in the privilege waiver territory, which Christine mentioned will be the subject of a, another discussion. And then also if there are multiple jurisdictions involved, there's added complexity as a result of the different tests for privilege that apply in each of those jurisdictions. And we'll talk a little bit more about that shortly. And lastly, if experts are going to be involved in the investigation, there'll be questions arising around the scope of their engagement and what they're being asked to opine on that will likewise impact privilege. So these are just a few types of the challenges that demonstrate why it's a really good idea to take a minute to think about the structure of an investigation upfront before the work starts, because it's tricky to undo or change down the track. Now, easier said than done, there's no one size fits all approach and the structure of what's gonna work in one situation might not be applicable to another. Christine, what are some of the key factors you'd recommend be considered? Thanks, Meryn. I think it is, as you say, not a one size fits all prescription and it will be highly dependent on the particular facts, the level of sensitivity associated with the issues, time pressures and the like. But some of the common factors I think it is useful to think about in how you structure an investigation at the outset include, first, the significance of the issue. So things to think about here are whether there's a risk of reputational harm, whether there is financial materiality attached to the issue, the existence of possible regulatory sanctions, 
and the complexity of the matter or structures involved. Uh, and then also, finally, if there's ongoing operational impacts from the issue to think through. And as we've alluded to on a few occasions already in this podcast, really thinking through the extent to which you've got privileged and non-privileged purposes sitting side by side. And to sort of flesh out some of the previous discussion, some of the common scenarios we do see coming up very regularly include, for example, where compliance and audit departments wish to see the work in order to look at the root causes and then undertake remedial steps, for example, uh, where the company understandably would like to give assurance to a regulator that the matters have been reviewed and root causes identified. So going back to your point, Merrin, about the end uses of any investigation output. And then finally, external auditors who themselves have their own obligations to report certain matters to regulators often wish to understand the details of the issue which has arisen. And that's only a few of the contexts in which this can arise. There's a plethora of other ways it can arise given the variety of different reporting and compliance and other obligations that many of our clients have nowadays. Where that happens, it's important to keep in mind that there will be challenges or likely challenges meeting the dominant purpose test. One sort of rule of thumb test might be asking the question of if a communication or document would have been brought into existence for some reason other than a privileged purpose. In other words, it would have been created in any event, even if there was no need for legal advice. That may be a pretty strong indication that it won't satisfy the dominant purpose test and therefore won't be privileged. Maren, what are some of the other tricky issues you see arise um, in this context in a practical way? A long list, but a, a sample set would include, firstly, the availability of privilege, in particular, the availability down the track. So, for example, are you in a scenario where you might be dealing with a situation where legal professional privilege has been abrogated by statute, ICAC being a good example of that? Then there's also the need or if not the need sometimes, the desire strategically or otherwise to share with regulators or other stakeholders. This will often come up in the investigation context and it relates to whether the issue is one where some assurance that the matter has been fixed might need to be provided or be desirous to be provided to regulators or stakeholders. That, that's a key uh, area where we see this arising. And if that's the case, we'd advise to think about that upfront and think about if that's going to happen or if you might want to preserve the ability to be able to share results of your investigation with a third party, that's relevant and needs to be thought about in terms of what structure might be the most appropriate to allow that to occur. And then the last one to mention now is cross-jurisdictional issues, which I briefly mentioned earlier. The reason this is so important to consider is if you've got an investigation touching multiple jurisdictions, in particular if it's outside of Australia, you need to be mindful of the different privilege laws in different jurisdictions and indeed whether the particular jurisdiction you're dealing with even has the law of privilege. But to use a common example, uh, being our friends in the UK, under the advice limb, 
there, the client is restricted to individuals who are authorised to seek and receive advice on the client's behalf. And third party communications, for example, interviews with staff are not open to privileged claims. The reasoning being they're not a communication between the lawyer and a person authorised to seek advice on the company's behalf. Now, this differs relevantly to the Australian position, where both the advice and the litigation limbs should cover third-party communications. So just one example there of why it's really important to have these things in mind up front and bear in mind what's going to be involved in your particular investigation when considering the best structure in all the circumstances. Speaking of structure, Christine, what are some structures that you've seen and adopted in your practice? So again, there's no one size fits all prescription to this, but there are some key, I guess, decision points I've seen clients consider at the start in terms of structuring their investigation. So the first is whether it's appropriate to consider having the work done across two streams. So this might be something to think about in a circumstances where maintaining privilege is absolutely critical because it does involve quite a lot of work and potentially duplication. To make that structure work, you would need to keep the streams, the privileged and the non-privileged streams as separate as possible. And you might need to consider balancing the importance of preserving privilege, therefore against the cost and complexity of that structure including, for example, the inconvenience to staff who might be asked to provide the same information multiple times. I think as well, a word of caution in that if the structure is really an artificial construct and in reality it is just one investigation that's being undertaken, there may be perception and reputational issues that arise in defending that before either a regulator or the courts. Um, and so that is important to bear in mind. An alternative that I think a lot of clients think through to running two parallel investigations might be to identify a non-privileged scope for an investigation and then to separately carve out an aspect or part of the scope, which is to be the subject of privilege and which would be run in a, a sort of separate fashion. Another sort of structural question or decision point for clients is who will actually run the investigation and conduct it day to day and that will include whether that should be in-house or external counsel or a mixture of both of them. Again, if the matter is particularly sensitive, there can be benefits to engaging external lawyers who are outside the company. And that may be particularly appropriate if the relevant in-house counsel wear multiple hats in the organisation, such as a legal and risk role or compliance role as well, which again may make establishing dominant purpose more challenging. Sort of a final note on structure is, the reality of many of these investigations is that input from non-lawyers will be required. So going back to the fraud example, you'd likely need internal audit, forensic experts, that sort of thing involved in other investigations. HR might be heavily involved or other people involved in the day-to-day -day running of the business. And so there's a real issue around how communication flows will be managed within the structure of the investigation. Having other functions involved won't necessarily be fatal to establishing a claim for legal professional privilege. Again, it comes down to the principles we started with, which is what is the dominant purpose for each communication. But in circumstances where another function is heavily involved or involved in a very dominant way, 
that will create a stronger inference that fact-finding is being undertaken for a non-privileged purpose. So again, the key tip is be clear about the dominant purpose at the outset and therefore how things will be structured, including information flows within that structure. Maybe a final point before we go back to our whistleblower scenario. Brendan, what would you do if the investigation has already started before in-house or external counsel is asked to be involved? Yes, it's a good question, Christine, and it can happen, obviously, obvious reasons, particularly in these um, emergency or particularly urgent contexts. Um, the difficulty that can arise is it's not possible to cure or make privileged the earlier non-privileged work. Um, courts are generally suspicious of positions um, where one tries to make earlier non-privileged work the subject of a legal professional privilege claim. And that has been, that position has been rejected in some cases. But there are options. You can formulate approaches which effectively stop the non-legal investigation and start again from that point with legal then driving the investigation for the purpose of providing legal advice. That's one example of the sort of approach one might take. Um, but if you do this, a key point is it will be important that there is a genuine, clean, obvious break and a genuinely new engagement developed. So that is the type of option one might look at if that sort of issue arises for you. But back to our whistleblower example, Merrin, after the call from the CEO on a Monday evening regarding this potentially problematic whistleblower report, as a summary, what are the key steps? Thanks, Brandon. Yes, just remember our hypothetical here involved looking to set up an investigation about allegations of serious fraud in multiple jurisdictions. So just to recap, some key considerations for this hypothetical having regard to the nature of the allegations. Uh, first, who conducts the inquiry? Bearing in mind external may be better if there's possible criminal sanctions involved, which there might be on our fact scenario. Next, are external experts required here? An obvious one that comes to mind is whether forensic accountants might be needed. Then what kind of confidentiality arrangements should be made internally, especially to ensure wrongdoers are not tipped off? Is this a case where parts of the outcome are likely to be shared, be that with external regulators or law enforcement or others internally? And then working through those factors and the others that we've touched on throughout this podcast, there are a number of routes that can be taken, but that's perhaps one of the reasons privilege can be quite complex. Thanks, Marin and Brendan. This is a complex area where it's critical to go back to the foundational principles at the outset in considering how and whether privilege should and could be sustained. We hope you found this episode useful. 
Our next one will explore preserving privilege throughout an investigation. And we'll also see then how our whistleblower case develops then. You can find more resources on our online hub, Legal Professional Privilege in Australia at hsf.com. Thanks very much for tuning in and please do get in touch if you have any questions.